0: Just moments before we got on the air tonight, the January 6th committee released another massive batch of transcripts from its investigation. Those transcripts include interviews with people like White House counsel Pat Cipollone and former Tra- Transportation Secretary, wife of uh, Speaker Minority Leader Elaine Chao, wife of Mitch McConnell, <laughs> Elaine Chow. We are sifting through those transcripts now, and we will bring you any news as we find it. But today, the New York Times Magazine published this behind-the-scenes exposé, By Robert Draper and Luke Broadwater. (coughs) It details how the January 6th committee was able to pull off an historic investigation and how the panel's nine members (coughs) were able to present their findings to the public in a way that captured the magnitude of their discoveries. Let's go to Robert Draper right now before I lose my voice entirely. Um, Robert, can you talk to me about the role Kevin McCarthy played in all of this? In terms of ultimately shaping the outcome of the committee.
1: No, it, I mean, interesting question, uh, Alex, because I, I think that unwittingly, Kevin McCarthy um, uh, really gave an advantage to the committee by making the decision after Nancy Pelosi pushed the veto button on two of his five picks to be on the committee, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks, uh, that McCarthy responded somewhat petulantly by then pulling the other three. What this meant was that um, Trump had no defenders on the committee and uh, that there was no kind of um, circus, You know, there, 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 there was no um, external um, fighting uh, amongst committee members and allowed them, therefore, to set their own narrative to, to actually engage in a series of productions, which the hearings very much were, uh, without any kind of interference. And, and uh, um, so McCarthy did the committee a favor, which I'm quite certain he didn't intend to do.
0: I mean, the other I'm sure he didn't intend on doing that either. The other person, the other Republican who effectively shaped the outcome of this committee was Liz Cheney. When you detail an exhaustive specificity, the ways in which she she kind of at every turn steers this committee into a different place. But beginning with and this is not just as someone in television, a part of it that has been wildly underreported, beginning with understanding the importance of the televised aspect to all of this. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Absolutely, yes, it's, um, Cheney was really the first person on the committee to recognize the necessity, not just you know the the virtue but the necessity of having high production values brought to this committee because in her view cheney's view, failure simply wasn't an option with this committee as a Republican, she knew that members of her own party were gunning for it, she knew that tens of millions of people uh, wanted it to fail, that there was a right wing media media ecosystem that would portray it as such, and so they Wanted to reach as many viewers as possible, and and that was why Cheney was a real proponent of the former ABC um, news president uh, and producer James Goldston of coming over and, and and actually doing the production of these. And and she and Goldston didn't always see eye to eye, and and Cheney didn't see eye to eye with a lot of the other folks on the committee too. But it certainly was her view that um, that it was important to lay out a case to do it in a way in, in a way that was narratively dramatic and thus appealing to a larger audience.
0: And, and Goldstein walks in there and is like, where's the control room? And members of Congress are like, what control room? I mean, they're really starting yeah. from like scratch when it comes to this actual production uh, project, if you will. Can you, can you describe the evolution of that and how they basically staffed it up?
1: Yeah, Goldston was brought in at the beginning of May, just one month before the committee was to begin its hearings. And this is a guy who's used to running a newsroom of a couple thousand people and was told by the committee staff, no, no, we we actually don't have any staff for you, but we don't think we'll need it. You know, these we're we're used to doing televised hearings before. And Goldston recognized, as uh, along with Cheney, how important it was uh, to do this in a way that would be sophisticated and would appeal to a wide viewership. So it, it um, that initial meeting that he had with the staff ended on a very, very pessimistic note, but um, Chairman Benny Thompson and Vice Chair Liz Cheney got wind of his consternation and uh, helped see to it that he got the production staff that he wanted, which was still very shoestring and still with only one month to spare. And I do have to emphasize, Alex, that as seamless as these productions, as these hearings appeared to be, they were always a photo finish. They always required 20-hour days, stuff being re- written at the very, very last minute, all sorts of glitches that we ourselves, the viewers didn't see. Um, but, you know, there was a real don't try this at home kids quality to the entire production.
0: Well, certainly. I mean, the other way in which Cheney was so instrumental was in recruiting some of the most explosive witnesses that were brought before the committee and before the American public. And I'm thinking first on that list is Cassidy Hutchinson. Um, it sounds like Cheney effectively brought Cassidy to her office, brought Hutchinson into like the inner sanctum, if you will, of the committee and walked her, <laughs> if you will, um to the witness seat, um, which is to say the public witness seat. Can you talk a little bit more about that relationship and how meaningful it was to have the daughter of Dick Cheney be the one to convince you that this was the right thing to do for American democracy?
1: Sure. Yeah, you have to remember, Alex, that for so many of these witnesses, overwhelmingly Republican, I mean, only a a couple of them were not Republican. uh, The idea of of testifying before a Democratic, a a predominantly Democratic committee um, sounded like the kiss of death, sounded like they, you know, was bringing on a world of hurt for them. It was Liz Cheney who brought a level of comfort, a level of familiarity, uh, a common language um, to the proceedings when it came to people like um, Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers, but I think particularly a lot of the women who were, um, Republican women who wanted to testify. And you mentioned Cassidy Hutchinson, who is certainly, you know, first among equals when it comes to that. Uh, Hutchinson was, um, was still, still had one foot in Trump world, even though she and her boss, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows had had a falling out. And she was certainly aware of what the likely repercussions would be if she were to, um, say everything that she knew. And, and indeed, as the story makes clear, and as readers also uh, recognize some taking a look at the Cassidy Hutchinson's depositions that were recently released, um, it it, this was a work in progress. She had one attorney, a guy, Stefan Passantino, who's from Trump World, and she felt very, very at pains, um, to be forthcoming, uh, to the committee. And it was really only over a period of time as she developed both a, um, uh, increasing discomfort with her own legal team and an increasing comfort with Cheney that she began, that she switched, um, she, she switched lawyers and then really began to tell all. And that was in, uh, a particular, uh, uh, deposition that immediately call, uh, compelled Cheney to talk to Chairman Benny Thompson, and then in turn to the other members and say, "We've got to have this young woman on in a standalone hearing right away."
0: And they didn't, because of security concerns for Cassidy Hutchinson. They didn't tell other members what was happening until basically the eleventh hour. Is that right? <laughs>
1: That's exactly right. They they literally were told the members were, um, that hey, we're about to have a um we're gonna have a special hearing. We need you all in Washington in the next couple of days. Uh when you do arrive you're to report to the secure compartmented um uh intelligence facility, the SCIF, uh a, a secure room where they could discuss classified information. And it was only then, uh literally three hours before the hearing was to begin, that they were told, the other members were, that Cassidy Hutchinson had all this bomb shell testimony, which they then gave um, excerpted summaries of uh, to the committee, and the committee could then see for themselves that, indeed, what she had to say was explosive. It still was not thoroughly agreed upon at at that moment in time um, that that Hutchinson should um, uh, bear the burden of of telling all this explosive stuff uh, without corroboration, but the die was pretty much cast, and so um, the rest is history.
0: Um, Robert, one more question for you, as we talk about Liz Cheney and her outsized role in all of this. You you note that um, <clears throat> she maintained a Captain Ahab-like focus on Donald Trump as a singular threat to democracy, but some of that focus made other committee members nervous because they weren't sure where her service to democracy began or ended and where her own political aspirations began. Um, and I wonder if you have any insight into all of that and how much of this is about, you know, capital D democracy and how much of this is about someone who believes they should be the next nominee or at least challenge Trump on the Republican ticket.
1: Sure. I mean, that question was an obvious one, both for other members and for staffers, given the fact that Liz Cheney, just a couple of months before she joined the committee, had refused to rule out the possibility that she, Liz Cheney, might run for president in 2024. So, it, it did beg the question to a lot of people, what are her motives? And and are we servicing her political ambitions or is she servicing us? Now, my own view, and I think the facts really bear this out, is that uh, what Cheney did in service to uh, on the committee, committee came in a very, very significant political cost. And it's hard, frankly, for me to imagine just what a political pathway would be um, for her, given all that's transpired. But yes, there, there was real concern at the time. I do think that, that, that um, you know, when Adam Kinzinger is quoted in the story, I, I'd interviewed him about this saying, look, you know, I had some frustrations with Liz Cheney, but I also think that uh, the committee would have failed without her, that, that she far more than anyone else is responsible for the committee's success.
0: I loved this reporting, Robert. I I love the parts like the little details about Nancy Pelosi silently offering people chocolates and then listening to what was going on. The sort of the 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 unspoken Svengali behind this entire operation. It's riveting journalism. It's coming at the perfect time as we're looking at the, you know, the final report from the committee, a new tranche of uh, transcripts that just came out in time for Christmas. Uh, Robert Draper, thanks for your time. Thanks for your reporting. Staff writer for The New York Times. Great to see you.
1: Great seeing you. Happy holidays.
0: Okay, in just a minute, we are going live to Capitol Hill where our very own Ryan Nobles has been reading through these transcripts, these brand new ones that the January 6th committee just released in the last hour. He's going to join us next to tell us what's in them. Stay with us. Just moments before we got on the air tonight, the January 6th committee released another massive batch of transcripts from its investigation. Those transcripts include interviews with people like White House counsel Pat Cipollone and former tra- Transportation Secretary, wife of uh, Speaker Minority Leader Elaine Chao, wife of Mitch McConnell, <laughs> Elaine Chow. We are sifting through those transcripts now, and we will bring you any news as we find it. But today, the New York Times Magazine published this behind-the-scenes exposé, by robert draper and luke broadwater (coughs) it details how the january 6th committee was able to pull off an historic investigation and how the panel's nine members (coughs) were able to present their findings to the public in a way that captured the magnitude of their discoveries let's go to robert draper right now before i lose my voice entirely um robert can you talk to me about the role kevin mccarthy played in all of this In terms of ultimately shaping the outcome of the committee?
1: No, I mean, interesting question, uh, Alex, because I I think that unwittingly Kevin McCarthy um, uh, really gave an advantage to the committee by— Making the decision after Nancy Pelosi pushed the veto button on two of his five picks to be on the committee, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks, uh, that McCarthy responded somewhat petulantly by then pulling the other three. What this meant was that um, Trump had no defenders on the committee, and uh, that there was no kind of um, circus. You know, there 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 was no um, external um, fighting uh, amongst committee members, and allowed them therefore to set their own narrative to to actually engage in a series of productions, which the hearings very much were, uh, without any kind of interference. And and uh, um, so McCarthy did the committee a favor, which I'm quite certain he didn't intend to do.
0: The, I mean, the other it, 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 I'm sure he didn't intend on doing that either. The other person, the other Republican <laughs> who effectively shaped the outcome of this committee was Liz Cheney. I mean, you detail an e- exhaustive specificity. The ways in which she she kind of at every turn steers this committee into a different place. But beginning with and this is not just as someone in television, a part of it that has been wildly underreported, beginning with understanding the importance of the televised aspect to all of this. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Absolutely yes. It's, um, Cheney was really the first person on the committee to recognize the necessity—not just you know the the virtue, but the necessity of having high production values brought to this committee. Because in her view, Cheney's view, failure simply wasn't an option with this committee. As a Republican, she knew that members of her own party were gunning for it. She knew that tens of millions of people uh, wanted it to fail. That there was a right-wing media media ecosystem that would portray it as such, and so they. Wanted to reach as many viewers as possible, and and that was why Cheney was a real proponent of the former ABC um, news president uh, and producer James Goldston of coming over and, and and actually doing the production of these. And and she and Goldston didn't always see eye to eye, and, and Cheney didn't see eye to eye with a lot of the other folks on the committee too. But it certainly was her view that um, that it was important to lay out a case to do it in a way in, in a way that was narratively dramatic and thus appealing to a larger audience.
0: And, and Goldston walks in there and is like, where's the control room? And members of Congress are like, what control room? I mean, they're really starting yeah. from like scratch when it comes to this actual production uh, project, if you will. Can you, can you describe the evolution of that and how they basically staffed it up?
1: Yeah. Goldston was brought in at the beginning of May, just one month before the committee was to begin its hearings. And this is a guy who's used to running a newsroom of a couple thousand people and was told by the committee staff, no, no, we, we actually don't have any staff for you, but we don't think we'll need it. You know, these we're, we're used to doing televised hearings before. And Goldston recognized, as uh, along with Cheney, how important it was uh, to do this in a way that would be sophisticated and would appeal to a wide viewership. So it, it um, that initial meeting that he had with the staff ended on a very, very pessimistic note, but um, Chairman Benny Thompson and Vice Chair Liz Cheney got wind of his consternation and uh, helped see to it that he got the production staff that he wanted, which was still very shoestring and still with only one month to spare. And I do have to emphasize, Alex, that as seamless as these productions, as these hearings appeared to be, they were always a photo finish. They always required 20-hour days, stuff being rewritten written at the very, very last minute, all sorts of glitches that we ourselves, the viewers didn't see. Um, but, you know, there was a real don't try this at home kids quality to the entire production.
0: Well, certainly. I mean, the other way in which Cheney was so instrumental was in recruiting some of the most explosive witnesses that were brought before the committee and before the American public. And I'm thinking first on that list is Cassidy Hutchinson. Um, it sounds like Cheney effectively brought Cassidy to her office, brought Hutchinson into like the inner sanctum, if you will, of the committee and walked her, <laughs> if you will, um to the witness seat, um, which is to say the public witness seat, can you talk a little bit more about that relationship and how meaningful it was to have the daughter of Dick Cheney be the one to convince you that this was the right thing to do for American democracy?
1: Sure. Yeah, you have to remember, Alex, that for so many of these witnesses, overwhelmingly Republican, I mean, only a couple of them were not Republican. Uh, the idea of of testifying before a Democratic, a predominantly Democratic committee um, sounded like the kiss of death, sounded like they were, you know, was bringing on a world of hurt for them. It was Liz Cheney who brought a level of comfort, a level of familiarity, uh, a common language um, to the proceedings when it came to people like um, Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers, but I think particularly a lot of the women who were um, Republican women who wanted to testify, and you mentioned Cassidy Hutchinson, who is certainly you know first among equals when it comes to that. Uh, Hutchinson was um, was still still had one foot in Trump world, even though she and her boss, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, had had a falling out, and she was certainly aware of what the likely repercussions would be if she were to um, say everything that she knew, And, and indeed as the story makes clear, and as readers also uh, recognize some taking a look at the Cassidy Hutchinson's depositions that were recently released, um, it This was a work in progress. She had one attorney, a guy, Stefan Passantino, who's from Trump World, and she felt very, very at pains, um, to be forthcoming, uh, to the committee. And it was really only over a period of time as she developed both a, um, uh, increasing discomfort with her own legal team and an increasing comfort with Cheney that she began, that she switched, um, she, she switched lawyers and then really began to tell all. And that was in, uh, a particular, uh, deposition that immediately call, uh, compelled Cheney to talk to Chairman Benny Thompson and then in turn to the other members and say, We've got to have this young woman on in a standalone hearing right away.
0: And they didn't, because of security concerns for Cassidy Hutchinson, they didn't tell other members what was happening until basically the 11th hour. Is that right? <laughs>
1: That's exactly right. They they literally were told the members were um that hey, we're about to have a um we're going to have a special hearing. We need you all in Washington in the next couple of days. Uh when you do arrive, you're to report to the secure compartmented um uh intelligence facility the Skiff, uh a, a secure room where they could discuss classified information. And it was only then, uh literally 3 hours before the hearing was to begin, that they were told the other members were that Cassidy Hutchinson had all this bomb shell testimony, which they then gave um, excerpted summaries of uh, to the committee, and the committee could then see for themselves that, indeed, what she had to say was explosive. It still was not thoroughly agreed upon at, at that moment in time um, that, that Hutchinson should um, uh, bear the burden of, of telling all this explosive stuff uh, without corroboration, but the die was pretty much cast, and so um, the rest is history.
0: Um, Robert, one more question for you as we talk about Liz Cheney and her outsized role in all of this you you note that um, <clears throat> she maintained a Captain Ahab-like focus on Donald Trump as a singular threat to democracy. But some of that focus made other committee members nervous because they weren't sure where her service to democracy began or ended and where her own political aspirations began. Um, and I wonder if you have any insight into all of that and how much of this is about you know, capital D democracy and how much of this is about someone who believes they should be the next nominee or at least challenge Trump on the Republican ticket.
1: Sure. I mean, that question was an obvious one, both for other members and for staffers, given the fact that Liz Cheney, just a couple of months before she joined the committee, had refused to rule out the possibility that she, Liz Cheney, might run for president in 2024. So, it, it did beg the question to a lot of people, what are her motives? And, and are we servicing her political ambitions or is she servicing us? Now, my own view, and I think the facts really bear this out, is that uh, what Cheney did in service to uh, on the committee, came in a very, very significant political cost. And it's hard, frankly, for me to imagine just what a political pathway would be um, for her, given all that's transpired. But yes, there, there was real concern at the time. I do think that, that, that um, you know, when Adam Kinzinger is quoted in the story, I, I'd interviewed him about this, saying, look, you know, I had some frustrations with Liz Cheney. But I also think that uh, the committee would have failed without her, that, that she, far more than anyone else, is responsible for the committee's success.
0: I loved this reporting, Robert. I, I love the parts, like the little details about Nancy Pelosi silently offering people chocolates and then listening to what was going on, the sort of the, the, un, the unspoken Svengali behind this entire operation. It's riveting journalism. It's coming at the perfect time as we're looking at the, you know, the final report from the committee, a new tranche of uh, transcripts that just came out in time for Christmas. Uh, Robert Draper, thanks for your time. Thanks for your reporting. Staff writer for The New York Times. Great to see you.
1: Great seeing you. Happy holidays.
0: Okay, in just a minute, we are going live to Capitol Hill where our very own Ryan Nobles has been reading through these transcripts, these brand new ones that the January 6th committee just released in the last hour. He's going to join us next to tell us what's in them. Stay with us. We have breaking news because this is the season of breaking news, and that is that the January 6th committee has just in the past few minutes released transcripts from 46 witnesses in its investigation. The transcripts include very bold-faced names that you will remember and recognize, like Trump attorney general Bill Barr, Trump secretary of state Mike Pompeo, Trump's transportation secretary, wife of Mitch McConnell, Elaine Chao, White House counsel Pat Cipollone and the president's own daughter, Ivanka Trump. Joining me now with more information is NBC's Capitol Hill correspondent, Ryan Nobles. Ryan, it is good to see you. You have the unenviable position of being on the front lines in a news hurricane up there on Capitol Hill. I know there's hundreds of pages of transcripts that we just got. Can you tell me anything about the selection of I've, these names? The I've committee read all 46 seems to be...
2: transcripts already, Alex. I've read, they're all done. I can tell you everything about them. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry, you, I didn't you, mean to
0: cut just, you off. <laughs> no, no. And, and you're a speed reader, and that's why you're the Capitol Hill correspondent. Before we get <laughs> to the substance of all of the transcripts, talk to me a little bit about how the committee, you know, how you're reading their selection of which transcripts to release and in what
2: order. Yeah, I don't think there, there's a real rhyme or reason to it, other than that they're trying to get them out as fast as they possibly can, and that we've n- known from the beginning that there was a security protocol that they needed to go through before they released them. They're going through and they're redacting the names of people that uh, they're concerned may be of some level of a security risk. Uh, they're you know eliminating any kind of personal identifying information that could lead to identity theft or th- something along those lines. So that that's a process, and, and it appears that once they've scrubbed a transcript uh, that from with all that material that they feel comfortable with then they release it now, There did seem to be a bit of a theme with the first uh, tranche of transcripts they released because that seemed to be everybody that just pled the fifth uh, to every question. But that might also have been because those are a lot easier to scrub because they didn't provide much information. Uh, And then, of course, they released the Cassidy Hutchinson transcripts on their own. She was, of course, perhaps the most important witness. This tranche tonight uh, is filled with, as you point out, some really significant and important names. The first one right at the top of the list is Pat Cipollone. Uh, who turned out to be one of the most crucial witnesses over the course of all of this and someone that it took quite some time for them to get in front of them. But you mentioned William Barr. What I'm most interested in and kind of the ones that I'm, I'm, I'm going to first are the the transcripts of which we did not see that much of these individuals over the course of the hearings. And, And that doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't provide important information. It just didn't make it into the kind of production that you were talking about with Robert Draper before you came to me. So for instance, Hope Hicks, uh, there's uh, her transcript. Uh, that's the one I was actually reading before you came to me. Th- they've only shown a, a very tiny bit of her transcript, and it was in the uh, uh, just in this last uh, business meeting that they held uh, a, a couple of days ago. So we had never seen any of that transcript prior to that. So that's one that's of, of interest. You mentioned Mike Pompeo. We did not see much from Mike Pompeo uh, during the hearing. So it'd be interesting to go in there and see some of that. And then the other thing I'll say about kind of my interest level in these transcripts and I'm sure others is that there's a lot of information that was potentially gleaned from these transcripts that doesn't necessarily have something specifically to do with the mandate of this investigation. Uh, you know, the, what comes to mind is, for instance, the, and this has been reported by the Washington Post and others, and I've independently confirmed it, is that Johnny McEntee, who's the the former uh, a, a White House aide, one of the top advisors to the former president, uh, testified that uh, the congressman Matt Gates asked for a pardon uh, that was related to this child sex trafficking uh, trafficking investigation that he was a part of. Now that had nothing to do with the investigation principally. They were asking about it because they were asking about people that were looking for pardons related to the investigation, but that came out as a piece of information. So that's not something that you're going to see in their report, but it might be something that pops up in a transcript. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm looking for uh, as these transcripts start to pour in. There's there's a lot that this committee uncovered, and not all of it could be fit, even in an 800-page report, Alex.
0: You know, Ryan, you thought tonight was going to be a time for eggnog and mistletoe, but we know how we're spending our evening. NBC's Capitol Hill correspondent, Ryan Nobles, thank you for making the time. We will catch you soon. Up next, we have some legal analysis of these new transcripts, the ones that the January 6th committee just released in the last hour. Stay with us. This is from the transcript of Mike Pompeo's interview with the January 6th committee. Question. Was there any discussion with Secretary Mnuchin about resignations, either yours or other cabinet members? Answer. I don't recall. Now, over the course of the day, the president issued a number of statements. Do you remember in real time seeing the tweets he put forth, any statements that he made at the time that he made those statements? Answer. I don't recall. Question. Did you reach out to any counterparts in other countries that day to convey Any information or reassure them as the attack on the Capitol was unfolding? Answer. I don't recall. That was Trump Secretary of State Mike Pompeo not recalling much. But if you read the transcript for Trump's daughter-in-law, daughter and advisor Ivanka Trump, you're going to find those same three words over and over again. I don't recall. Same goes for conspiracy theorist and election-denying Kraken lawyer Sidney Powell. She doesn't seem to recall anything either. Yesterday, we got the transcript for the committee's interview with one of their star witnesses, Cassidy Hutchinson. She detailed how her original Trump-funded attorney discouraged Hutchinson from being open with the committee about what she knew. Here was one particularly telling moment from that testimony about the kind of legal advice Trump-backed lawyers were giving at the time. Mark Meadows' advisor, Ben Williamson, generally said to me, though, that Mr. Meadows, along with Ben's attorney, said that something to the effect of, I don't recall is a completely acceptable answer to give the committee on questions. The committee doesn't know what you can and can't recall. Joining us once again is former U.S. Attorney Barb McQuaid. Barb, thanks for coming back. Just don't leave me for the next year. (laughs) Um, When it comes to these transcripts, I am now trained because of that Cassidy Hutchinson transcript to view any answers like I don't recall with a healthy amount of skepticism. That said, the fact that Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state, can't remember any of the key events of January 6, including whether or not he as secretary of state was reaching out to international partners, seems pretty far fetched. How do you read it?
3: Yeah, I think it's simply not plausible. I would guess that if the Justice Department wants to question some of these same witnesses, what they would do is go back and read these transcripts and then really push them on some of these areas where they claim not to remember. If he wants to invoke his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, that's one thing, but it really does seem incredible. I think it also seems incredible now that we know that Cassidy Hutchinson has testified that this was a strategy to pretend you don't recall because the committee doesn't know what you do and don't really remember. I think you could use that to push it a little bit and say we know that at least some witnesses got this advice to simply say you can't recall. Um, You know, tell us more about this and really probe each aspect of those questions. So uh, I don't think I would accept those answers uh, as they stand if I were with the Justice Department. And then if you really want the answers, one thing you could do is grant them immunity and compel their testimony.
0: Um, Barb, you know, it's not just the I don't recall caucus that we got the uh, tranche of transcripts from. It's also some people who said some very inconvenient things about tra- President Trump, including uh, lawyer Pat Cipollone and a t- former attorney general Bill Barr. Of the ones that were just released, which transcripts are you most interested in?
3: Yeah, I think those two that you mentioned are incredibly important. Pat Cipollone, I just was skimming through it and he he does answer questions. He does provide information. And he was there in the inner circle. So I think he is someone who is incredibly important. The other one that I'm curious about, I haven't looked at it yet, is Ken Kukowski. He, to me, is just a fascinating figure. He doesn't even show up to the Justice Department for his job until December of 2020. After the election and just a few weeks before the administration is set to end, he is someone who knew John Eastman, and now he starts working for Jeffrey Clark, and he drafts this letter about... Proof of concept for Georgia. He seems like kind of the glue between those two separate threads of the scheme. So I'd be really curious to hear what he had to say.
0: Well, we know what our holiday reading list is. Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney. Thanks, as always, Barb. Really appreciate your time tonight. When we come back, we have much more on the January 6th report, all 800 plus pages of it and the new transcripts that are just out tonight. One thing we are learning more about in all of this is the role of the Secret Service and law enforcement on that day. We are gonna get to all of this when we return. Stay with us. Welcome back to this special edition of Alex Wagner tonight. We are happy to have you here with us. We just got a new batch of transcripts from the January 6th investigation. And boy, oh boy, we have some important names in this batch. We're still going through them. But our friend Kyle Cheney over at Politico is ahead of the crowd. And he is reporting tonight after reading Ivanka Trump's transcript, that Republican Senator Susan Collins called Trump's daughter amid the violence on January 6th to urge that her father get more engaged in helping to quell the violence, to put an end to it. Ivanka Trump then talked to Senator Collins after the riot, and this time she was with Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. The three had a discussion about Trump putting out a statement supporting the peaceful transfer of power. Hmm. Again, we are still going through these, and we're going to let you know when we know more. But these are important facts that are coming out after the January 6th investigation last night released its much-anticipated final report, a whopping 845-page document outlining the many ways President Trump and his allies conspired to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Trump wanted to overturn the results despite knowing within days of the election that he had lost. That's in the report. Quote, in the days after the election, the president's own campaign team told him that he had lost and there was no evidence of significant fraud. Trump didn't listen and instead he executed on a plan. He and his team were going to deny that he'd lost and instead say the election was stolen. Former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson told the committee that at the helm of that effort was her boss, former chief of staff Mark Meadows, who was under constant pressure from Trump to figure something out. This is what she testified. Mark was just kind of trying to tell Trump, well, sir, like we have other options. We're still looking at other things. Don't worry. Like we're going to figure this out, the, the this here, how to steal the election. And the president said something to the effect of I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. Figure it out. We need to figure it out. I don't want people to know that we lost. Even after the election was certified on January 6th, Trump still didn't want people to know that he had lost. The committee has video of the former president saying that much on January 7th, as he was rehearsing a speech condemning the previous day's attack on the
2: Capitol.
4: I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say
2: Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay?
0: This is the big lie. At play, one that included outlandish theories about fake ballots and dead voters. And each and every one of those instances, Trump and his team knew there was nothing to these ideas, nothing but fraud. Here's an example of that from a conversation between Mark Meadows and then White House lawyer Eric Hirschman on December 3rd, which was, of course, well before the storming of the Capitol. Quote, Hirschman, Just an FYI, former Trump campaign lawyer Alex Cannon and his team verified that the 10,000-plus supposed dead people voting in Georgia is not accurate. Meadows, I didn't hear that claim. It's not accurate. I think I found 22, if I remember correctly. Two of them died just days before the general election. Hirschman, it was alleged in Rudy Giuliani's hearing today. Your number is much closer to what we can prove. I think it's 12. Meadows, my son found 12 obituaries and six other possibles depending on the voter roll accuracy. Hirschman, that sounds more like it. Maybe he can help Rudy find the other 10,000? Meadows, LOL. When the claims of dead voters didn't pan out, Trump elevated conspiracy theories about Dominion voting machines. That idea came from lawyer Sidney Powell, who falsely claimed the company's software was created in Venezuela at the direction of Hugo Chavez to make sure the socialist leader never lost an election. When Powell told Trump about this conspiracy theory during a phone call, Trump laughed, literally. While she was speaking, the president muted his speakerphone and laughed at Powell, telling the others in the room, this does sound crazy, doesn't it? A few days later, the Trump campaign issued a statement claiming Powell was not part of the Trump campaign's legal team. But the lie, the lie itself, that survived. According to the committee, Trump tweeted and retweeted more than 30 false claims about the Dominion machines. And he did the same with every other crazy theory that was thrown at him with devastating consequences. The January 6th report concludes that all of these lies motivated Trump supporters to attack the U.S. Capitol. And if there is someone to blame in all of this, that man is quite clearly former President Donald J. Trump. Joining me again is NBC's Capitol Hill correspondent Ryan Nobles. Ryan, it is good to see you. Thank you for being here tonight, my friend. Um, can you, we have a lot going on here. Um, as we talk about the transcripts and the, the final report, uh, Can you tell us whether what the relationship is as it stands right now between the material, the evidence that the committee has supplied that has gathered over the course of this last several months, and the DOJ, whether Mm -hmm. the DOJ is basically, whether everyone is working, you know, we're at parallel work work output, whether the, the sort of biggest names that have had the most bombshell testimonies have gone to the DOJ. Do we have evidence that everybody's rowing in the same direction at this point?
2: It's a great question, Alex, and I don't think there's any doubt that where the the relationship between the committee and the Department of Justice is now is much different than it was, say, over the summer. You know, uh, Benny Thompson, uh, in a lengthy interview with our colleague Simone Sanders Townsend, uh, said that they basically have created an open door policy with the Department of Justice that they can have access to whatever they'd like at this point. And of course, now they're starting to release all these transcripts uh, to all of us, not just the Department of Justice. So they're going to have access to them uh, in a. It came after a letter that was sent by the new special counsel, Jack Smith, uh, to uh, the committee asking for that evidence. And and Thompson now, since the investigation, their investigation is wrapped up, willingly handing that over. It was much different over the summer where the Department of Justice wanted this information uh, and Benny Thompson was reluctant to give it to them because the the work product was not yet complete. Uh, Now, in terms of, you know, how many of these Department of Justice, uh, uh, how many of these witnesses that appeared before the committee of appeared appeared before the Department of Justice, there's still way more people that have talked to the committee than have talked to the Department of Justice. They're obviously not as forthcoming about who they've talked to at this point, uh, but that is starting to pick up. And But that is another thing Thompson said, is that they have had so many more conversations and they've, to a certain extent, created a roadmap for the Department of Justice to follow. It may not end up in the same exact place as the committee did, but there's no doubt that the work that the committee has already put in is going to make the job. Of the Justice Department that much easier as they try and figure out if a crime was committed here and whether or not it's prosecutable.
0: Uh, Ryan, just to be clear here, the committee gave the DOJ a lot of these transcripts earlier in the month of December. Is that right? Or are they getting them on the, the 23rd of December just like we all are?
2: So that's not exactly clear. Uh, The way that uh, Benny Thompson described it was, if they ask for something, we're going to give it to them. So it's not as if they just handed over the entire tranche uh, of transcripts. And and we should also point out, it's not just transcripts. It's the video of the depositions. It's also the emails, text messages, documents, uh, everything else that they've collected. That is all theoretically something that the Department of Justice might have access to. So uh, it's not as though the Department of Justice has all of that information yet. Uh, The way Thompson described it at the beginning of the month was that it was on a case-by-case basis. Can we have this? Yes, you can. Here's how you get it. But eventually, you would have to think by the end of the of the month uh, that access the, the that information will all be handed over to not just the Department of Justice, but they promise that we'll all get to see it.
0: NBC's Capitol Hill correspondent Ryan Nobles. Ryan, thanks for hanging late tonight. No problem. Thank you. To further break down what all of this means for Trump, legally speaking, let us turn to former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama and the co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast, Choice Vance. Choice, it's great to see you. I know that you are diligently doing your homework that was just assigned at the top of the last hour, which is this tranche of transcripts featuring some of the most prominent names from Trump world. Those... Persons of interest that we've been discussing the testimonies of for the last several months, including Bill Barr, Pat Cipollone, Ivanka Trump, some new names in there, Hope Hicks. Have you had a chance to review your anything at this point, And what can you tell us about what you have?
5: Well, I'll tell you, Alex, where I've started is with Ken Klukowski. He's a minor player. Many people may not be familiar with his name, but he's a lawyer who went to the Justice Department with under a month left in the Trump administration. That's pretty unusual. He attached himself to the staff of Jeffrey Clark. Jeffrey Clark, of course, was the head of the Environment and Natural Resources Division, who ultimately became this wannabe attorney general, willing to (coughs) perpetuate the, the big lie for Trump if he could have the job. And what's never really made sense about the whole story with Jeffrey Clark and his rise to prominence is that he's not an election lawyer. He had no prior experience in that field, but he had crafted this, um, you know, I'm going to say not within the confines of the law, but still technically, a very succinctly crafted plan that the states could use to upset elections and return victory for Trump. And how that came out of Jeffrey Clark's mind was difficult to understand until you saw that Ken Klukowski had gone on to his staff. Klukowski, who has some experience in that area, has written a sort of lengthy, very meaty treatise in, in the Yale Law Journal in this area. And so that began to click. The question about Zukowski is, what does he have to say, right? Will Will he talk about how this, this whole relationship played into perpetuation of the big
0: lie? Joyce, help me to understand something, because in some of these transcripts, we gain an understanding that John Eastman himself at points admitted that his strategy regarding uh, Pence and even fake electors was not really going to hold up in 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 a court of law and and several times admits yes but you know Trump's heard about this and once he gets something stuck in his head it's hard to convince him otherwise i'm paraphrasing but that's the essence of it right there's kind of a consciousness of guilt if you will how then do you convince these younger lawyers to come in and effectively perform a surgical strike at the end of December after the election has been called for Joe Biden to do something that even the mastermind behind it will will reluctantly but still admit is not within the bounds of the law. I mean, did they did they did they imagine they would get disbarred or worse, do you think?
5: So it's hard to know what was going on in the mind of the Kraken lawyers, but certainly they had to have known that they were flirting with danger. Trump becomes very disenchanted with the good lawyers on his campaign staff, with other campaign people because they're insisting that the big lie is just that, a big lie. And so Trump at some point disassociates himself with those people and brings on Rudy Giuliani uh, Giuliani's team of lawyers. And that, according to the report, includes some people who, um, you know, are younger than Giuliani, but not young lawyers. People like Sidney Powell and Cleta Mitchell, who uh, have been partners in significant law firms and know what they're doing. That to say, Alex, they were aware of the potential weaknesses and certainly of illegalities in some of these um, places. There is a point recited in the report where, where Mike Lee is talking with Cleta Mitchell, one of the lawyers, Senator Mike Lee from Utah, conservative Republican senator, and he, he has the opinion this could be the end of the republic. This could be the end of democracy if we use this scheme. So your point, I think, is well taken. It was readily apparent that this was not legal.
0: I, I, I'm also struck by this Mark Meadows um, testimony by way of Cassidy Hutchinson and this Mark, Mark Meadows quote by way of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, where effectively Meadows is like furiously paddling upstream to find a way to turn the election for Trump after the fact. You know, well, sir, we have other options. We're still looking at other things. Don't worry. We're going to figure this out. The amount of pressure. That Mark Meadows felt he was under to do what is the most un- anti-democratic thing one can do—subvert a free and fair election—at the whim of, of of you know Donald Trump. It it brings to mind the the sort of intimidation that you see in a crime syndicate. Did you? I mean, what is there to that by way of you know Trump's role and Trump's intent in all this, as as evidenced by the behaviors of his underlings?
5: Right. So the way that they operate is very much um, reminiscent of organized crime sort of activity, where everyone is loyal to the leader, everyone's interests are subservient to the leader. And, and while you can't prove Trump's intent by looking at what Meadows was doing, Meadows certainly would be able to shed light on Trump's intent. One of the real problems that DOJ faces and they may by now have solved it is the fact that people who spoke directly with Trump or people who overheard direct conversations with Trump for the most part hid behind executive privilege and said they couldn't talk about what Trump said or how people responded to him. There's some suggestion that that has now broken in the Justice Department's grand juries, and that uh, people like the former White House counsel, Cipollini, whose transcript is included in this batch that has just dropped, have now been willing to testify beyond what they previously
0: were willing to discuss. And indeed, we have, we know from Robert Draper's reporting that Cipollini was almost ready to do public testimony at the encouragement of Liz Cheney, but pulled out at the last minute. Um, Cassidy Hutchinson has led the way. We'll see if others follow, Uh, if if behind closed doors, whether they are ready to tell everyone or tell the important, the people that matter, shall I say, what actually happened inside the Trump White House in and around January 6th. Former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, the great Joyce Vance. Joyce, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. Up next here tonight, we have new insight from the committee report into one of the biggest outstanding questions about that day. Why didn't the Secret Service do more to alert other law enforcement about what they knew could very well happen at the Capitol after Trump's speech? Former FBI counterintelligence agent Peter Strzok joins us next. Plus, we'll talk with one of the members of Congress who voted to release Donald Trump's taxes. Congresswoman Judy Chu joins us. That's just ahead, stay with us. One of the biggest failures mentioned in the January 6th report was the fact that the Secret Service received tips about the impending assault on the Capitol as early as two weeks prior, and that those tips went nowhere. The first tip on December 24th was a compilation of social media posts gathered by a private intelligence group. From the report, one of them urged that protesters march into the chambers. Another referring to President Trump's December 19th, will be wild post, wrote that Trump can't exactly, exactly openly tell you to revolt. So the December 19th post was the closest he'll ever get. Another understood the president's tweet to be urging his supporters to come to Washington armed. Others were to the same effect. There is not enough cops in DC to stop what's coming, make sure they know who to fear, and waiting for Trump to say the word. Another tip received by the Secret Service on December 26 mentions the Proud Boys, detailing plans of having a large enough group to march into DC armed and will outnumber the police so they can't be stopped. It stressed their plan is to literally kill people. Please, please take this tip seriously and investigate further. The Secret Service was warned not only about Trump supporters' plans to come to the Capitol, but also about the threat of deadly violence. But if those concerns were ever conveyed by the head of Trump's security detail to White House Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Ornato and on up the chain to the Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, we do not know. When the committee asked Ornato, he simply could not remember. Committee staff, do you remember talking to Chief of Staff Meadows about any of your concerns about the threat landscape going into January 6th? I don't recall. However, in my position, I would have made sure he was tracking the demos, which he received a daily brief, presidential briefing. So he was most likely was getting all this in his daily brief as well. I wouldn't know what was in his intelligence brief that day, but I would have made sure that he was tracking these things and just mentioned, hey, are you tracking the demos? If he gave me a yeah, I don't recall it today, but I'm sure that was something that took place. It is very hard to parse exactly what Tony Ornato is saying in that. The committee also notes that despite the testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson and another witness that Tony Ornato told them about Trump's irate behavior when he learned he wouldn't be driven to the Capitol after his speech, Ornato said he could not recall that conversation and had no knowledge of the president's anger. Hmm. These instances led the committee to issue this pretty damning assessment. The select committee found multiple parts of Ornato's testimony questionable. And when you add to that the details from Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony about Mark Meadows meeting up with Tony Ornato at a White House holiday event and the head of Trump's Secret Service detail on January 6th, a man named Bobby Engel, about him attending a private after party in the chief of staff's office. What you get there is the picture of an agency that appeared very cozy with the former administration, even while neglecting what would seem to be one of its most basic duties. Joining us now to discuss this is Peter Strzok, former FBI counterintelligence agency, agent. Mr. Strzok, thank you for being here tonight. Am I, are we overreading the intimacy here, the the going to the after parties, the, you know, kind of being invited into the inner sanctum of, of the Trump White House paired with the sort of recalcitrance or memory loss, convenient amnesia over details that would in fact be pretty damning for the Trump White House? Are we overreading that or is that an affair assessment to link those two?
4: I don't think we're overreading it at all, Alex. I mean, I think the question is, at the end of the day, when you have a senior law enforcement official like Anthony Ornato in the Secret Service as a se- senior executive, leaves the agency to become a political appointee in the White House, first it raises questions about the independence of both him and his former agency, the Secret Service, and then for him to return to the Secret Service after serving in that political position, again, as a senior law enforcement officer, I think raises appropriate questions about what he was doing and to what extent he had any role role uh, with regard to the protected mission of the Secret Service. So when you combine that with the committee's concerns about whether or not he was being forthright in his testimony, when you combine that with these huge bulk of missing text messages that, you know, were wiped from the devices as part of a technology refresh right on January 6th, it does give rise to a lot of questions about what was going on. And I'm afraid to say, you know, kind of looking through the report, looking through Appendix 1, which talks about the sort of government preparedness and response, there's still a bunch of unanswered questions that I don't think that the uh, committee was able to get to the bottom of.
0: It, 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 it seems impossible to believe that Tony Ornato wouldn't remember whether he briefed Mark Meadows on the security threats that were very clear at that point. I I mean, I just, as a a, a security, as as someone whose job is to make sure that the event goes off as planned, the basic one, two, three is, hey, make sure there's not a violent insurrection. Did you find that to be in any way credible that he could not recall whether or not he had these conversations?
4: No. Uh, I mean, frankly, when you come pair that with Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony where she is giving these extraordinarily compelling stories of you know, the fight in the limo where he's trying to go up to the Capitol and his detail is bringing him back, back to the White House. There's no way, given the gravity of that day, if something like that occurred and I fully believe, I agree with the committee that finding that Cassidy Hutchinson was an enormously compelling and appears to be very truthful uh, individual in her testimony was very, very credible. I find it hard to believe that anybody who heard that story, anybody who Heard that recounted would not remember very specific details about that. So, you know, again, I I have questions about that. One of the most chilling things, again out of her testimony, was Trump's concern that the crowd wasn't going to be big enough. And he was told by his detail, look, you know, there are a bunch of people who have weapons, and they don't want to go through the magnetometers because they don't want those weapons confiscated by the Secret Service. Now the law on DC is very, very clear. Having, you know, concealed weapons is absolutely illegal. It's not a thing where you, if you have a license in one state, it carries over. And then Trump says, according to Hutchinson, they're not here to hurt me. Let them in. So, of course, the question is, one, if Trump was aware of it, if the Secret Service was aware of it, why didn't they convey that concern? And two, Trump was clearly certain they weren't there to hurt him. But the obvious question is, all right, who are they there to hurt? And if they have weapons, what was done to convey that warning to others?
0: Well, and I think we know pretty clearly based on the noose erected on the Capitol grounds and the chance of hang Mike Pence, one of the people they wanted to hurt was the Vice President of the United States. In some ways, at the explicit, you know, urging of the President himself. Talk to me a little bit about the, the sort of order of operations. If, if if Trump's detail knew that there was an insurrection on the horizon, that President Trump was himself going to march to the Capitol to urge on that insurrection, to what degree, what is the responsibility to tell the vice president's detail, who was clearly not in the loop on all of this, very much in the dark, and at one point told the vice president that it had to get him off the premises because they could not protect him in the current situation?
4: No, that's right. And if you recall as well, some of the testimony was that the vice president wasn't comfortable getting into the vehicle. And at least as some people testified, he told his detail leader, I know you and I trust you, but I don't know who else is on the detail and who's driving the car. But look, Alex, I think it's important too, to frame this in a broader context. I mean, we're talking about the Secret Service, but at the end of the day, the role of the Secret Service is to protect the president, the vice president. You have to scope back and look more broadly at all of the law enforcement responsibilities that were brought on January 6th. And this isn't just the Secret Service. I mean, we're seeing in these prosecutions plots and plans that went on for weeks and months leading up to January 6th. So I think it's a fair question to ask, not only just of the Secret Service, but about the FBI, about the Department of Homeland Security, all of these complex conspiracies, which are at trial now, some of which have been found guilty in the case of the Oath Keepers. Where were the federal law enforcement agencies in terms of getting a hold of this information prior to January 6th? Because there's a lot of indication that, again, in the weeks and months prior to that, there were these plots in at play that were being developed. And I think there are, again, a lot of questions that if you go to Appendix 1 that the January 6th committee raises. But in my reading, there are not a lot of satisfactory answers about why there wasn't a better understanding understanding of what was coming.
0: Peter Strzok, former FBI counterintelligence agent, it is great to hear from you tonight, Peter. Thanks for your time.
4: Thanks, Al.
0: Okay, up next here tonight, the other big blow to Donald Trump this week, the vote to release his taxes to the public. The taxes still aren't out, but the night is young, and we already know some of the questionable things in the reports, and we learned that Trump was not audited for much of his time, unlike, oh, say, other presidents named Joe Biden and Barack Obama. One of the people, one of the few people who've actually seen Trump's taxes, Congresswoman Judy Chu, will join us coming up next.
6: I was shocked to find that the IRS did not comply with its own mandate to conduct annual audits of the president's tax returns. This mandatory presidential audit has been in place since 1977, and yet, during Trump's four years in office, only one mandatory audit was even started, and none of the audits were completed.
0: That was California Congresswoman Judy Chu. She and the rest of the House Ways and Means Committee this week broke the blockbuster news that despite former President Trump being the first president since Richard Nixon to not publicly release his tax returns, despite the fact that the IRS had audited President Obama and President Biden every year they were in office, despite the fact that President Trump's tax returns were filled with red flags. Somehow, despite all that, the IRS did not perform the mandatory annual presidential audits that it has been required to perform since the year 1977. Somehow, the IRS just didn't look at Trump's taxes until Democrats, like Judy Chu on the House Ways and Means Committee, started asking questions. Joining us now is the woman herself, California Congresswoman Judy Chu, member of the House Ways and Means Committee. Congresswoman Chu, thank you for being with us on the eve of this holiday week. Uh, I just want to first start with how this happened. We know that the IRS is underfunded, but is that a red herring? Was there something more political at play, perhaps?
6: It was truly shocking, actually, to all the members of the Ways and Means Committee that this had not taken place. We did not know until we finally got the clearance by the Supreme Court to look at these tax returns. And that was in November. So it wasn't until November uh, that we discovered that these mandatory audits weren't being done. And um, yes, uh, one reason for this is the unfair funding of the IRS, this has been going on for a decade now. And in fact, the uh, tax enforcement auditors have declined by 30%, which means that the audit of the millionaires have declined by 70%. So we need to change that because of course, it just encourages millionaires to be tax chief unless there is this enforcement going on. And certainly it is shocking with this president who has interests in hundreds of businesses Nonetheless, every president needs to have this audit in place in order to gain the confidence of the American people.
0: Congresswoman, I'm curious to know what the IRS's response was once Democrats started, you know, pressing them on the case. Was it oops, we forgot or was it this is what you get when you don't fund us? I mean, was there an excuse for all of this?
6: Uh, they actually haven't made an official comment, though uh, the previous commissioner during this period said uh, that they have been under resourced. Uh, And certainly this is why in the Inflation Reduction Act, we did provide $80 billion to the IRS to be able to audit these high income millionaires, but also to provide better service to every American who's been on hold on a phone line uh, for hours uh, trying to get an answer from the IRS. So we want to have better service for the American public. But I also have to wonder about why this particular case had so little resource given to it. And in fact, I have to say that in Trump's tax audits, only one of which was even started during this time period, um, they only assigned one, one auditor only one auditor for uh, tax returns that had at least 400 um, uh, tax returns that were uh, related to it and in which there were many, many questions which were outlined by the Joint Committee on Taxation which showed many red flags in Trump's taxes uh, that needed to be followed up on, such as not even a delineation of what his charitable deductions actually were. I think that's what is
0: termed willful neglect, or more more colloquially, slow walking those that audit. If you're assigning one person to such a complex tax return, I mean, as someone who has seen these returns, one of the very few people that's seen them in full, um, we know we have an initial report from the House Ways and Means Committee. But w- what has concerned you the most, and what should we be looking for when those returns are released in full to the American public?
6: Well, actually, it's the chair of our committee that's seen the tax returns themselves. We in the committee have seen the, re- the two reports that went into qu- a great detail uh, on what happened. But yes, we have to look into these red flags in Trump's taxes. First of all, he claims mammoth business losses. And that is why in two of his relevant years, he only had to pay $750 in taxes. And in one of those years, he said that he had $30 million in earnings, but $60 million in losses. Well, that raises a lot of questions. And then we have to see whether he improperly spent money um, or claims on personal activities uh, when he claimed that they were business expenses, uh, such as in his aviation. He, he claimed massive business expenses for that, but were they really for his personal? Uh, kinds of activities. And then there are the loans to his kids. He claimed, um, many thousands of dollars, uh, and hundreds of thousands of dollars, actually in interest payments on loans that he gave to his kids, but were they actually gifts? And if so, uh, he didn't pay the gift tax on those. So there are many myriad questions here.
0: There are myriad questions and knowing what we know about how Donald Trump conducts his business, I bet a lot of people out there could probably try fielding a few answers to those questions. California Congresswoman Judy Chu, member of the House Ways and Means Committee, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. If you are like me and feel like this week has been 15 days long, you are not alone. But there is one important thing that happened during this news tornado that you may have missed. And it is a bit of history that was made in Democratic politics. The woman who made that history will join us live coming up next. When we talk about what happened on January 6th, it is important to consider to what degree the events of that day were a reaction or a response to a changing and increasingly diversifying America. The fact of the matter is a lot of progress has been made in recent years when it comes to a more representative democracy in this country. This past election cycle, we focused a lot on the bonkers, truth-denying slate of candidates who were up and down the ballot, but the midterms also produced some pretty incredible and historic firsts. Democrat Mary Peltola had back-to-back wins in a special election and the midterm election for Alaska's at-large congressional seat. She became the first the first Alaska native elected to Congress over in California, Democratic Senator Alex Padilla, who was appointed by Governor Gavin Newsom in 2021 to fill the seat of Vice President Kamala Harris when she became vice president, he became the first Latino elected to represent California in the Senate. Down in the House in Oregon, Republican Lori Chavez de Remer and Democrat Andrea Salinas will be the first Latina members of Congress from their state. Pennsylvania Democrat Summer Lee will be the first Black woman to represent her state in Congress. Democrat Delia Ramirez will be the first Latina to represent Illinois. And Yadira Caraveo will not only be the first Latina to represent the state of Colorado in Congress, but she will also be the state's first Congresswoman of color, period. In Maryland, Democrat Wes Moore was elected the first Black governor of that state, becoming only the third Black person ever elected governor in American history. In addition to becoming the first female governor of Massachusetts, Democrat Maura Healey will also be one of the first openly lesbian governors, along with Oregon's Democratic governor-elect Tina Kotek. And in two months, Virginia's fourth congressional district is poised to add one more name to the list of historic firsts. Virginia State Senator Jennifer McClellan this week won the Democratic nomination in the race to succeed late Congressman Don McEachin. Congressman McEachin died at the age of 61 after a long battle with cancer just weeks after winning re-election. McClellan, for her part, will face Republican Leon Benjamin, but the seat is expected to stay in Democratic hands. Leon Benjamin lost to Congressman McEachin by 30 points last month. With McClellan expected to win the seat, she would become the first black woman to represent Virginia in Congress. And as she put it this week, quote, Bring a new perspective to a delegation that has never had a black woman sitting at the table. Joining us now for her first nationally televised interview is Virginia State Senator Jennifer McClellan, the Democratic candidate for Virginia's 4th Congressional District. State Senator McClellan, thanks for joining us this evening. Um, and I don't want to say congratulate, well, congratulations on the first leg. And we are, will be watching closely the next leg of all of this. When, we, when I give that laundry list, the historic first from the midterm elections, I wonder how it feels to be potentially in a group of people who are really pushing the ball forward in terms of inclusivity and in a more representative democracy.
7: Well, it, it feels incredible. I mean, first of all, that in 2022, we're still having firsts is, is incredible. But to know that I could be the first Black woman uh, from the same district that sent the first black man to Congress over 130 years ago um, just just particularly warms my heart.
0: I wonder if you look at this in the same way that I do, which is I, I don't think that the events, you know, I always used to say, I, quoting myself, but the, January 6th and January 5th were not unlinked. January 5th was the day Georgia sent Raphael Warnock and Don Ossoff, a black man and a Jewish man, to represent uh, the state, to the Senate, the United States Senate. The next day, there was a violent attack on that Capitol. Now, I'm not saying it was a direct result of the Warnock and Ossoff elections, but it seems to me that there are these seismic forces in American politics, one that is very resistant to change, that is angry and will get violent about that change, and another that is relentlessly pushing for that change, for an America that looks different than it has for the last 200 years. Do you see Do you see the landscape in that way? Do you see that sort of being the existential fight of the country right now in terms of politics?
7: I do, and it's not the first time. And as a matter of fact, what also happened on on January 5th, um, I was so excited about uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff getting elected that I I went to look at my father's Bible. We were coming up on the anniversary of his passing, um, and he was on my mind. And in that Bible, I found a copy of the poll tax receipt. Uh, for the poll tax that he had to pay when he first registered to vote in Tennessee in the 40s. And I thought to myself, this is poetic justice. I wish he was here to see it. And then, of course, the next day we saw uh, the violent backlash. But just as um, John Mercer Langston and those black men who were elected to Congress in the in the 1870s, they also faced a violent backlash, voter suppression, Uh, and lies and propaganda. And it's a cycle that repeats itself, uh, but it's a cycle that finally, I think is going to be broken as we move forward. (laughs)
0: To that end, your opponent is an election denier. He's a Trump backer, Leon Benjamin. Um, Your predecessor, uh, Congressman McKeachin, refused to debate him. Uh, I wonder if you are going to take the same position. And if so, what is the best way to push back on fraudulent claims, on misinformation, on lies that actively undermine democracy?
7: Well, first of all, he still has not conceded that he lost uh, the election in 2022 or I think even in 2020. And I take the same position until he concedes that he lost those elections. I see no point in uh, debating him because he's already shown that he's going to lie and not uh, discuss the truth. I'm going to talk to the voters of the fourth district directly and tell them about my extensive record, representing them in the General Assembly, my extensive record uh, in the community, in this district, which I was born in, Um, be 50 years next week. Um, And just talk directly to them. And I'm pretty sure that my views, my beliefs are more in line with those of the voters of this district than his. You know, we're in this moment
0: where we so greatly debate who gets to tell the American story and your family very much is the American story. Right. Your father having to pay a poll tax and now his daughter may be the first black woman elected to represent the state of Virginia in the House of Representatives. It's an extraordinary, you know, as much as we focus on the negatives, it's an extraordinary thing. It's overdue, but it's still an extraordinary thing worth, worth pointing out. Virginia State Senator Jennifer McClellan, who is running as the Democratic candidate for Virginia's fourth congressional district. The race is not over yet, but we will be watching very, very, very closely. Good luck out there on the campaign trail on these closing days, Senator McClellan. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. And
7: thank you for having me.
0: Okay, we have been pouring through the 40-plus witness transcripts released tonight by the January 6th committee. What we found in the testimony of Chief Mike Pence aide Mark Short regarding his meeting with the Vice President's Secret Service detail the day before January 6th. That's next. Stay with us. We are continuing to read through the transcripts released by the January 6th committee today, including the deposition of Vice President Mike Pence's chief of staff, Mark Short. The committee asks Short about a meeting he called the day before January 6th with the head of Pence's Secret Service detail, Tim Gables, to warn him that President Trump was likely to be mad and that that could have an effect on Pence's safety. Quote, here's Mark Short. I'd ask him to come to my office, which was my smaller office in the West Wing, and I said to him that I would expect the president to express his disagreements publicly and to make sure that his team, Gable's team, was aware of that. Question, and would that have a potential impact on security or threats, the kinds of things that Agent Gable's needed to be aware of? Short. I don't know, but I think it was my job, if I had a concern, to make sure it was raised with him, and so on January 5th, I had informed him of at least that concern to make sure that he was prepared for any potential activities that could that, that that could trigger. I can't sit here and tell you in any way that I would have anticipated an attack on the Capitol or could foresee that. But it would be in the best interests of the head of the vice president's security detail to be aware that the disagreements between the two are going to become public. Yes, yes. Question. And it's important that the Secret Service know that because the disagreements that would go public might have an impact on the vice presidents and other security. Is that fair to say? Short. My concern was for the vice president's security. And so I wanted to make sure the head of the vice president's Secret Service was aware that likely, as these disagreements disagreements became more public, that the president, as in Trump, would lash out in some way. It is gripping reading, and it is a reminder of the truly unprecedented nature of the events leading up to and including January 6th. That does it for us for now. Happy holidays to all of you.